Did anybody spend time in First Chronicles this week? Oh, praise the Lord for you. How, <laughs> uh, I would ask, how did, how did the first seven or nine chapters meet you? But uh, my guess is probably like it did me with eyes crossed and uh, uh, just feeling kind of dizzy with all with the onslaught of names that come at us in the first uh, nine or so chapters of, uh, of First Chronicles. It's kind of it's kind of crazy. It's uh, it's kind of like the baby name book of the Old Testament. There's lots of genealogies in the Old Testament, but uh, the first ten chapters of uh, First Chronicles definitely uh, are, are holding the candle as the champion of uh, of genealogies in the Old Testament. I've uh, titled this uh, sermon tonight "The Purpose of History." First Chronicles: The Purpose of History, and by that I don't mean the purpose that history serves for us today. But the purpose uh, or purposes that we see uh, threaded all throughout human history. God has a purpose in history. And, and that is uh, much of what we see in First Chronicles. The purpose of God worked out in the history of his people. Uh, hopefully you uh, got kind of a, a listening guide uh, as you came in this evening. And so we're just we're going to work our way through that. And then we're going to get into the, the text here a little bit. As we look at the book of First Chronicles, uh, we find that there is no uh, formally stated author of Chronicles. Uh, there's, you know, like in some of the New Testament uh, letters and that sort of thing, Paul or John or whoever is writing the letter, Peter, will identify himself at the beginning of it. Uh, other books in the Old Testament, like the prophets, are, are named after the prophet who delivered the message and presumably wrote it down. Even the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy, have this tradition uh, of authorship associated with Moses being the author. But First Chronicles doesn't really have anything quite, quite so formal e- even as that. But many scholars do believe that Chronicles was written by Ezra, Ezra the priest who was um, one of the returnees from the Babylonian exile who helped to oversee the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. He was a contemporary of Nehemiah, and many scholars believe that Ezra is not only the author of First and Second Chronicles, but also of the, the twin volumes of Ezra and Nehemiah. The date of the events of First Chronicles, or I'll just say Chronicles generally, because First and Second Chronicles are just volumes one and two, really of the same work. The events of the Chronicles take place largely during the reign of David, which we'll, we'll begin with tonight, uh, through the fall, through the, the, the destruction and taking into exile of the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, and Chronicles ends with the people of Judah uh, being taken into Babylon as exiles. The date of the writing of Chronicles, though, is uh, significantly later than the actual events that, uh, that are written down here. Very likely, uh, Chronicles was written sometime in the 5th century BC, toward the, either toward the end of the Babylonian exile or in the early period of the, uh, of the Israelites' return to Jerusalem uh, and to national Israel. Chronicles, the two volumes, tell a story of Israel's climb to significance and fall into exile from about 1000 BC to 597 BC. It largely covers the southern kingdom of Judah with very little mention of the northern kingdom of Israel, predominantly because it would be mostly people from the southern kingdom of Judah that are returning back to uh, Jerusalem after the Babylonian exile. 
Chronicles contains uh, uh, most of the same history as Kings and Samuel. So if you spent any time this year reading through the Bible in a year and you've already been through First uh, and Second uh, Samuel and First and Second Kings, what we find in First and Second Chronicles is a lot of the same information kind of repeated. Uh, but from but Chronicles takes place not from the perspective of one who has lived through those events, but one who is recording those events for a people who are preparing, who have been uh, uh, aliens from their own homeland and now are returning to their homeland after exile in Babylon. Chronicles is written from the perspective of of one who is intending to remind the people of Israel where they came from, uh, why they why they have been in the situation that they've been in most recently, and, and to remind them of God's presence as they go back uh, to their homeland. Now, First Chronicles, as we said, like the first 10 chapters are genealogy. Uh, and after that, uh, we, find we have mostly the, the life of, uh, of David, his reign as king and his intentions to uh, build a temple to the Lord there in Jerusalem. But there are two major themes that pervade at least this first volume of Chronicles. The first is this, that God's purposes are often inscrutable. Uh, that's my $20 word for the week. Uh, inscrutable means unknowable. Right, and, and that doesn't mean always unknowable. That we don't always, uh, we're not always ignorant of what God is doing. But sometimes we have to have the benefit of several years, maybe several decades, maybe even a century to, or, or two of history to be able to see God's purposes as He works them out over time. Second theme that appears in First Chronicles is that of God's presence and glory being critical to His people. God's people need his presence and, and his glory. And we'll see that in several different ways as we work through this book. Now, looking at Chronicles in the scope of redemption history, Chronicles reminds us very much, um, the two volumes working together, uh, of the deep effects of the fall upon uh, human beings. That, that the fall which took place in the Garden of Eden between Adam and Eve, disobeying God, breaking his only commandment, eating the fruit they were not supposed to eat, that separation that takes place between them and God, uh, humankind then becoming sinners, uh, even from the, the moment of birth as a result of that fall. That the effects of sin in the life uh, of, human, uh, of humankind, and especially even of God's people in Israel, is just all over the place in Chronicles. And so uh, you may want to just circle that word fall and, uh, and maybe the arrow next to it pointing to the, pointing to the right toward redemption because Chronicles points us to, the, uh, again, the depravity of humankind, uh, but also leads us to uh, the, the kind of silver lining of, of hope of redemption that, that will come from God. Now, Chronicles is like so many books that we've already read in the Old Testament. Actually, I think every single book that we've read in the, that we've looked at in the Old Testament up to this point, it falls into the genre of historical narrative. It's, uh, it's telling a story of history. Uh, it's not fictional. It, it is, uh, it's nonfiction, but, uh, but it's also a crafted narrative. Um, it's nonfiction told with a purpose, uh, not just reporting events as they happen, but reporting uh, events that happened in the life of Israel uh, while also giving sort of their theological significance, if we can put it that way. 
So like other books of historical narrative, there's not a whole lot in the way of instructive material. God's saying, do this with your life, do that with your life, don't do this, don't do that. But there is a lot with regard to how God's, uh, God reveals his character with uh, the way that he deals with people and how people interact with God. And so you have those familiar questions that are helpful for studying books like Chronicles, studying other, uh, other books of historical narrative, asking the question, what is this text telling me about the character of God? What is this text revealing about God's relationship to Israel and and to his people, even through the church? What does this text reveal to me about how God deals with with people generally? Uh, Am I seeing patterns of sin and redemption, uh, the need for repentance, those kinds of things, and, and and, and then looking at those for encouragement in our own life? Now, Chronicles outlines, 1 Chronicles outlines really, really easily. There's essentially two parts. The first part is chapters 1 through 9, where we have from Adam to David, a genealogy of Israel. And, and we literally get from Adam all the way to, to David and even, you know, David's sons and some of his descendants afterward. And then chapters 10 through 29, the last uh, 19 or 20 chapters of, uh, of the book, deal with David's reign as king and his planning for the temple. It's a very simple book in, in outline. And as we said before, we get a lot of the repeated material from, uh, from Samuel and Kings here in Chronicles. And so my purpose tonight, my intention tonight, is not to revisit everything that we've already looked at in those uh, previous history texts in the Bible, uh, but to look here at what the chronicler uh, will refer to him as, is trying to show us in and through this history of the life of the people of Israel. That said, let's turn our attention to those themes and as we see them in the text. First of all, theme number one, God's purposes are accomplished in his timing. This is the first thing that the author of Chronicles is teaching us, that God's purposes, God's purposes, I put the emphasis on the wrong syllable, God's purposes are accomplished in his timing. Now, if there's anything about Chronicles that serves as fodder for those who want to claim that the Bible is irrelevant, doesn't mean anything, it's pointless for people today, it is, it is these sort of seemingly endless genealogies in the first several chapters of this volume of Chronicles. Uh, look, this is how it starts. Adam, Seth, Enosh. Like, this is funny. The chronicler doesn't even mess with saying, these are the generations of people from the beginning of the time to, to now. He just, he just starts at the beginning. Adam, Seth, Enosh. Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, Shem, Ham, and, jo- and Japheth. The, the chronicler is nothing but efficient with language. Right? There, there's no verbs, even in that, that first sentence. He's just getting right down uh, through the generations. Uh, this goes on for nine chapters. And a good many who have tried to make fun of the Bible or show that it has no meaning for us today have pointed to these genealogies so as to say, this is pointless, just name after name after name after name after name. There's nothing in there for us. Now, I haven't counted them all, but there are dozens upon dozens of names mentioned just like this in very quick succession in these first nine chapters of Chronicles. And they begin, as we saw, with the very beginning of man's history with Adam, and and they take us all the way to David. Now, anytime a genealogy begins with Adam, you know you're probably going to be there for a while. And while these genealogies may not seem all too significant to us today, for instance, uh, who remembers uh, the sons of Seir, Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anna, uh, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan? I I, I mean, yeah, exactly. Some of you are are going, those are cool names. And others of you are going, uh, I wouldn't name my worst enemy that. And some others are going, I have no idea. Is he even speaking English right now? Some of these names are just like so far 
out there, and, and, uh, and they may seem insignificant or, or unmeaningful to us today, but think about these names and the importance that they held, uh, not for people living in the 21st century, but for people living in the 5th or the 6th century before Jesus was born. People who uh, uh, are from the nation of Israel who are about to return to their homeland for the first time in 70 years, coming out of exile in a strange land. These lists of generations, Adam, Seth, Enosh, so on and so forth, are evidence to them that though they were coming out of exile, they were not a people without a history. Instead, the genealogies serve to demonstrate to the people that there are people with a deep and rich history that illustrates the faithful purposes of God over and against the attempts of other nations to destroy and even to remove them from the world. As we go through these genealogies, we see guys like Adam and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and, uh, and Moses and his brother Aaron and so on down the line, uh, uh, Isaac and Jacob and Jacob's 12 sons, the tribal heads of, of Israel. And all of a sudden, we're, we're not just reading names, we're, we're reading a summary of a history. This genealogy, it takes us from Adam and the fall of mankind uh, into sin, takes us to his sons, takes us to Noah and God's faithful redemption of Noah through that global flood, takes us to Abraham that God chose to be the father of the nation of Israel through his offspring, then to Jacob whose name was changed to Israel, his 12 sons who become the tribal heads of the nation of Israel. From there, the chronicler zooms through generations of the Egyptian slavery period and the, the generations through the Exodus, all the way up to the period of the Judges, and then ultimately to David in chapter 3. Now following that, we get the generations of the tribes of Israel up to the moment where the people were sent into exile. And here is the first clue or the first hint that we get uh, uh, of God's intentional action in uh, in the history of, of Israel for his purposes. Listen to 1 Chronicles 5, verses 25 and 26. The chronicler says, But they, the people of Israel, the southern uh, tribe of Judah, they broke faith with the God of their fathers, and they whored after, gods, after the gods of the people of the land, whom God had destroyed before him. So the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pul, king of Assyria, the spirit of Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. And he took them into exile, namely the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and, he, and brought them to Hala, Habor, and Hara, and the river Gozan to this day. In chapter 6, verse 15, we get a, a second statement about the purposes of, of God and the working of God in the history of Israel, even leading them to exile. Chapter 6, verse 15 says, Jehozadak, the last king of Judah, went into exile when the Lord sent Judah and Jerusalem into exile by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Notice one thing in particular about these verses related to the exile and the people of Judah going into exile. First of all, it was God who stirred up the spirit of the king of Assyria to conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. And it was God who sent Judah and Jerusalem into exile by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. The, the chronicler says that clearly in both places. The Lord stirred, or God, the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of the king of Assyria. The Lord sent Judah and Jerusalem into exile. This is to say that God was working on purpose and for a purpose, with a purpose, in the discipline of his people. 
the people of Israel and people of Judah being taken into exile was not a, a chance accident of history. And it wasn't because the, just because the Assyrians were wicked and the Babylonians were, were uh, just as powerful following on them. God had a purpose in all of it. God sent them active, active uh, action, active work on the part of God, sending them into exile. But even before we get to the exile, we find God working his purposes in his people, particularly in the life of David. About 400 years before the people went into exile, we have the life of David. And and this is where the chronicler uh, uh, begins to turn in in chapters 7 and following. He kind of gets all the way to the exile, and then he backtracks a little bit to talk about David. And we see the faithfulness of God working his purposes in the life of this king. And we've seen this already in greater detail in Samuel uh, and also in Kings, but just see it again briefly in Chronicles. Uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verse 14. We read uh, in verse 13 that, that precedes it, Saul, the, the king, Saul, died for his breach of faith. He broke faith when the, with the Lord and that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Now, when we read the end of Samuel, uh, uh, the end of 1 Samuel, and we hear about Saul's death on the battlefield, he falls on his own sword. It looks like he's committing suicide. But the chronicler uh, takes us back a step to look kind of behind the, the cosmic curtain, if you will, to see all that is going on. And tells us that, that Saul may have killed himself, but it was the Lord who put him to death for his lack of faith. It was the Lord who cut his life short for his unfaithfulness to lead the people of Israel in godliness and righteousness. And instead turns the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. First Chronicles 11 verse 9 says, David became greater and greater because the Lord of hosts was with him. David does not become a great king because David is a great leader. David does not become a great king because he's a good-looking guy. David does not become a great king because he's he's just particularly wise or humble or knows how to do this or that. We we read all through 2 Samuel all of the failings and the faults of David. The guy's personal life is a wreck. But he becomes greater and greater, not because of his, his own gifts or his own talents, but because the Lord of hosts was with him. The chronicler wants the people of Israel to know this, to know that as they are going back to Israel, if they are to be great again, if they are to be successful, if they are to be a people for the purposes of God, that it will be God who does this work in them, just as it was God who did this work in David, their king, before them. So God is working his purposes by removing one king to replace him with a man after his own heart in David. But God works also his purposes through David's offspring as well. God doesn't stop working just with David. David in his love for the Lord will aspire to build a temple for God's permanent dwelling. You remember the Ark of the Covenant has, has been only in that tent called the tabernacle, that tent of leather and goat skin and uh, woven cloth tra- that traveled all throughout the desert during the wilderness wandering period. And now David, as king, has a home for himself and he wants to build a temple for the Lord and he intends to do so, but God stops him in chapter 17, verses 10 through 14. 
David has these great intentions. The prophet Nathan even tells him to go for it. Uh, but then uh, as we read in uh, 2 Samuel, the Lord visits Nathan the prophet at night and, uh, and changes Nathan's convictions and says, no, I don't want David to build uh, me a temple. Instead, go and tell him something different. And so in 1 Chronicles 17, beginning in verse 10, we see the first clue towards God's uh, uh, faithfulness and his purposes, not just through David, but also through David's descendants. I'll begin in verse 9 of chapter 17. God says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall waste them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will subdue all your enemies. Now remember, David said, Lord, I want to build you a house. I want to build a house for your dwelling. Well, the Lord says to David in the second half of verse 10, Moreover, I declare to you, says the Lord, that the Lord will build you a house when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now this promise of of God to raise up David's offspring and through him to build a house for his own name, to be a father to David's son and David's son to be as a son to God, all of this is reasserted for us again in chapter 22 and in chapter 28. It's not at all uncommon, and justifiably so, to hear people ask and to wonder, Where in the world God is in the midst of evil and bad things that are happening in the world? I think the Israelites who were taken into captivity after the great work of David and Solomon as kings, they they probably asked much the same questions as they're being dragged off uh, into exile, uh, asking themselves, even asking God, where are you in all this? Why is all of this happening? And most of them would die in exile over the next 70 years or so before their descendants would be able to return to Israel to rebuild it. Now, we who live several thousand years later, we can look back from the perspective of hindsight to see how God worked among and and shaped his people over those years in exile for his glory and for their good. But in the midst of it, you can imagine how Israel may have been incredibly frustrated by all that was going on, maybe even feeling forgotten or neglected or ignored or or even cast off by God, hopeless even. Here's the thing to learn from this overtly God-centered perspective on the history of Israel that we have in 1 Chronicles. We often cannot know Nor may we even in our lifetimes come to know the purposes toward which God is working. We often cannot know, nor may we even in our lifetimes know, the purpose toward which God is working. Even through through what uh, things that seem to be evil, wicked, and painful, difficult circumstances in life, we may not ever have answers in this life as to why God is allowing, maybe even causing these difficult things to take place in our lives. A whole generation of Israelites died in exile. They did not see what God would ultimately do in leading them back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and the wall and a place for his dwelling and a people from whom the Messiah would come. 
And so we need to learn from the history that we have in First Chronicles that God is always working all things in history for His purposes. It's not for us to determine necessarily what is going to be eternally good or bad. We know from Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, those 11 brothers of Joseph who sold him into slavery into Egypt meant an evil thing to him. They're trying to get him uh, out of the house. They hated him. But Joseph, over a period of several years, rises to be second in command of all of Egypt in such a time, in such a way as to save his brothers and their families from that severe famine. And so he says to his brothers at the end of Genesis, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And so we cannot always know why difficult or hard things are happening, but we can know that God is always working his purposes for his glory and for our good. And on that note, let me just say that what we have as definitions for what is good for us may not be God's definition of what is good for us right? So here I want to do things slightly differently. Usually I'll I'll, I'll get through all of the book that we're studying and then look at connections to Christ. But at this point, I just want to go ahead and take one detour and look at this first connection to Jesus in the book of 1 Chronicles. That, That just as God is working his purposes throughout history, we know from what the New Testament tells us that Jesus Christ is the long awaited but most timely fulfilled purpose of God. You know, there was a period of about 400 years during which the people of Israel heard nothing from God. There was no revelation from God. There was no prophet who had any word of the Lord for the people. 400 years. That's that's almost, it's just slightly less time from the Protestant Reformation to now. 400 years without a word from God. And yet, in Matthew's gospel, we observe which begins in very similar fashion to First Chronicles, God working his purposes even after a long period of silence. Matthew begins his gospel this way, very similarly to how uh, the chronicler begins First Chronicles. Matthew writes, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's how Matthew begins his gospel, with a genealogy, with a tracing of the generations uh, of, of Jesus going all the way back to Abraham. Now, the point of Matthew's genealogy of Jesus is to do two things for us. First, it is to show us that Jesus is the promised king who would come in the line of David. Even as God promised to David to raise up his son, to uh, establish his kingdom forever in 1 Chronicles 17, we find that Jesus is that king in the line of David whose kingdom will be established forever. That is part of Matthew's purpose in giving us this genealogy that goes all the way back to David, that great king with whom God made a promise, and back to Abraham, another man with whom God made a promise. Jesus would be a a, a king who would not be a, a, a sort of son to God like Solomon, but Jesus who is the actual incarnation of the second person of the triune God. He's the only begotten son of God. Secondly, however, Matthew is showing us in his gospel that Jesus came not at just a good time, but at just the right time. Matthew's summary statement in chapter 1, verse 17 that, uh, of his gospel, that there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the exile, 14 generations from the exile to Jesus, is a very formulaic and theological way of saying God has brought Jesus at just the right time. Not just at a good time, not just at a convenient time, but at the time that he planned, at the time of his perfection. You know, Paul in his letter to the Galatians says much the same thing. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul says this about the coming of Jesus. 
He says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And when Paul says the fullness of time had come, he means when the perfect time had arrived, Christ was born of Mary. When all the anxiety, when all of the tension, uh, when all the world events and circumstances had reached their height and, and most critical moment, Jesus was born. Mind you, Jesus was born some 600 years after Judah went into exile into Babylon. Again, that's more time from, uh, uh, that has passed since Martin Luther and the Reformation to the present moment. That's only been about 500 years, but the Israel waited 600 years from going into exile in Judah till the moment when the Messiah was born. Friends, God's purposes are often inscrutable. We cannot know them, oftentimes even in our lifetime. But we have so much history recorded to us and recorded for us in the Old Testament of God's genuinely and perfectly good purposes and timing that we have more than enough evidence uh, to, to... Uh, we have more than enough evidence to keep us from questioning God's motives. Uh, uh, We have more than enough evidence to keep us from asking, God, are you good? Why are you so slow to act? And Chronicles is showing us that God's purposes are accomplished in his timing. Never a moment too soon, never a moment too late, but always in the fullness of time. God's purposes are often inscrutable, and he's working everything in history for his purposes. Whether we can see how those things work out or not, that's the first thing the Chronicler is showing us in this first volume. The second thing is this, that God's presence and God's glory are critical. They're crucial to his people. They, they are a centerpiece of their existence as his people. Now, from the days of Exodus all the way up to the exile, the preeminent sign of God's presence and glory among his people was in what? The Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, right? That large golden case with uh, angelic cherubim on top that held the tablets of the Ten Commandments as well as several other artifacts uh, of the Exodus. Now, uh, whatever Indiana Jones would have you believe, we don't have the Ark. It's been lost to history. Uh, we, we don't have it still today. Uh, although the, the portrayal of the Ark uh, in Indiana Jones is probably pretty similar to what it looked like in reality. The ark was lost uh, ultimately in, in uh, various battles among the Israelites to other nations on more than one occasion. Uh, it, it, would, it would go away and then it would come back and somebody else would steal it and then the Israelites would retrieve it again. But as David ro- rose to the throne as king, he endeavored more than anything to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. Right? To bring that symbol, that picture of God's presence among his people back to Jerusalem to make it the centerpiece of their worship again in the tabernacle. Yet in his enthusiasm, David sins. He finds the ark and he makes preparations to bring it back to Jerusalem. But instead of putting the ark on poles and having it, having it carried by the priests as God had instructed in Exodus 25, David relegates the ark to being pulled on a cart by a pair of oxen. And so we read in 1 Chronicles 13, verses 9 through 14, this this tragic event. When they came to the threshing floor of Kidon, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark, for the oxen stumbled. You get the picture. The, the, uh, the oxen uh, have some bad footing. The, the cart begins to wobble. The ark looks like it's about to tumble off. And this guy, Uzzah, says, oh no, and puts his hands up to catch the ark to keep it from falling. 
Verse 10 of 1 Chronicles 13 says, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of God that day, and he said, How can I bring the ark of God home to me? So David did not take the ark home into the city of David, but he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of God remained with the household of Obed-Edom in his house for three months. And the Lord blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that he had. The ark, this picture of God's glory and his presence among the people, is so critical to their life and their worship that, that David, and, and I would say rightly so, wants to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. But in his enthusiasm, he disobeys the commands that God has given for how people are to approach God's glory, how, people, how his people are to handle those things that God has said are holy. And so even as good as David's intentions may have been, his execution was subpar. It was disobedient. And so God acts in anger toward David's disobedience and to Uzzah, who thinks that he can just jump right up and touch this holy thing of the Lord, striking him down dead. Now, in time, David would change his heart. He would return to the command of the Lord, and he would bring the ark back into Jerusalem. We read in just a couple of chapters later, chapter 15, verse 15, that the Levites, in time, carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles, as Moses had commanded, according to the word of the Lord. And so the ark returns to the city of Jerusalem, this picture of God's presence and glory, when rightfully approached, is brought safely back to the people of, uh, of Israel in the city of Jerusalem. Now, to have the ark in the city again was to know that the physical resting place of God's presence and his glory was now again in the midst of his people. That's so important. So don't, don't miss the significance of that. Uh, um, the ark was not, uh, was, is not like God's, um, it's not like an idol or, or an image for God, but it is the picture of his presence among his people. It was between the cherubim that God would meet with the high priest when he went into the Holy of Holies. And so having that ark as part of their rightful worship of God in the city is so significant for the people of Israel. And God's glory and his presence in the ark is so important to the people of Israel that David takes pains to bring it back to the city. But more still, David desires to honor God by building him a temple, a permanent place for the uh, resting point of the ark. Uh, in contrast to that uh, uh, temporary tent that was covered with the dust of the desert and stained by the blood of sacrifices over so many years. Now, David, as we see in time, will not build the temple of the Lord. He intends to, he desires to, but he won't be allowed to. That will be for Solomon. But David will make it his life's goal as king of Israel to secure all that is necessary for building the temple. We read in chapter 22, verse, uh, verse 5, these words. I'll begin in chapter 22, verse 1. David said, Here shall the house of the Lord uh, God, and here the altar of the burnt, uh, burnt offering for Israel. David commanded to gather together the resident aliens who were in the land of Israel, and he set stonecutters to prepare dressed stones for building the house of God. David also provided great quantities of iron for nails for the doors of the gates and for clamps, as well as bronze in quantities beyond weighing, and cedar timbers without number, for the Sidonians and the Tyrians brought great quantities of cedar to David. 
For David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced, and the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent, of fame and glory throughout all lands. I will therefore make preparation for it. So David provided materials in great quantity before his death. To be sure, the Ark of the Covenant and the temple would be massively meaningful for the people of Israel in terms of seeing, knowing, interacting with God's presence among them, worshiping them, uh, worshiping God rightly through the ordinances of worship that God had given in his law to take place there. But there is a place of God's dwelling, of his presence and his glory, that is greater even than these physical places of the ark and the temple. As great as those are, there's a better place even still. The better place for his dwelling is not in houses built by his people, but the better place for his dwelling is in the very hearts of his people. David, this king, this man after God's own heart, demonstrates uh, uh, that God, that the, the presence of God, the, the impact of God in his own heart and in his own life, at several places uh, through, throughout his life and, and in the events of his life. But he does so well, very well, in song. Turn with me in First Chronicles chapter 16. And just hear, if you would, the heart of David as he sings to the Lord. We know that David wrote a good many of the Psalms in the Old Testament. And uh, part of what we'll read here in First Chronicles is repeated in various different Psalms uh, throughout the, the book of Psalms. But just listen to the heart of David and the way that he has been imp- impacted by the presence of God in his life. He says, beginning in verse 8, of chapter 16. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. Oh, offspring of Israel, his servant, sons of Jacob, his chosen ones. Picking up in verse 23, sing to the Lord all the earth, tell of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and he is to be held in awe above all gods. For the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, strength and joy are in his place. Look with me at verses 35 and 36. Say also, says David, save us, O God of our salvation. And gather and deliver us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen, and praise the Lord. Later on, towards the end of his life and the end of this first volume of Chronicles, David prays to bless the offerings that have been given for the building of the temple. And so in First Chronicles 29, verses 10 through 13, we read this. Therefore, David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. David is a man who understood the importance of the presence of God, not just in 
these physical things of the ark and the temple, things which, which God delighted to allow the people of Israel to build, things which he even gave them commands to build in the ark. But I think what David images or illustrates best for us today is that the dwelling place of God, as great as it is in the ark and in the temple, is far the more greater still in our own hearts. When our hearts, like David, are those which are uh, 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 those that, that, that are made after the image of God's own heart, when God is dwelling in the hearts of His people, that is far better than just God dwelling in the ark and in the temple. Not to take away from God's holiness and His His glory and His presence there. The way that David prays, the way that he leads his people to pray, is to be mindful and 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 to rejoice in the presence of God among his people. And where better than in the lives and the hearts of his own people? This now takes us to the second connection to Christ in First Chronicles, and that is this: that Jesus Christ is the glory and the presence of God in the world and in us by His Spirit. Jesus Christ is the glory and the presence of God in the world, and he's the glory and the presence of God in us by his Holy Spirit. You remember John says in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14, speaking of Jesus, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. There is only one in all of the universe. Who, ha- who bears in his body the fullness of God, and that is Jesus Christ, the uh, only begotten Son of the Fla- Father, who is full of his glory, full of grace and truth, who made his home among us, who took on flesh and dwelt among us. Do you remember the promise that God gave through his prophet Ezekiel? He said in Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27, I will sprinkle clean water on you, speaking to the people of Israel, and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, says the Lord, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus is God in flesh who dwelt among us. God also gave a promise, though, that his spirit would would live in our hearts. He gave that spirit to Ezekiel. And so when we get to Acts chapter 2, after Jesus has already died for sins and been raised again, ascended into heaven uh, uh, to sit at the right hand of the Father, Peter, the apostle, preaches the gospel of salvation for the first time, gospel of salvation by faith in Christ, saying this to the people who are listening in Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise, the promise that was given to, uh, to the people of Israel through Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The reason that the presence and glory of God may rest in us by his spirit is because Christ has died for sins and because Christ has sent 
the Holy Spirit, that helper, that, uh, the, the Greek word, the paraclete, the one who comes alongside us to live in us, to write God's law upon our hearts, to enable us to walk in God's statutes and to be uh, careful to obey his rules. All of that happens. The promise uh, uh, of being able to do that is fulfilled because Christ has died for sins. Because Christ has sent his Holy Spirit to dwell in the hearts of those who live. And so by faith in Christ, we have the presence and the glory of God in us now as a down payment for the hope of eternity, which is to be in the very presence of God in his glory for all time. And we experience a little bit of God's, uh, uh, I shouldn't say a little bit, but the fullness of God's presence in us in the Holy Spirit now. And we experience some of God's glory as the Holy Spirit dwells in us now. But, but we will experience the glory and presence of God in yet a more perfect way still. As we read in Revelation chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, John receiving this vision from the risen Lord Jesus about things that are yet to come. And he sees far into the future uh, a vision of the resurrection, a vision of what we call eternal life. <clears throat> John writes in Revelation 21, beginning in verse 22, uh, excuse me, verse, uh, in verse 1, uh, and, and then we'll get to verse 22 in a moment. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. The sea, the ocean, is often a, a, a picture, a symbol of chaos, disorder, confusion in the world, even of danger. There's no sea there in the sense that there's no danger, there's no chaos in the new heavens and new earth. He says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her, her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. God's presence and his glory are critical to his people. So much so that in the resurrection, God will be present. His glory will be seen not through veiled images of an ark and a temple and not just through his Holy Spirit living us, but we will be in the actual very real presence surrounded by the glory of God. In verse 22, John of Revelation 21, John continues. He says, and I saw no temple in the city. You might think that's a bad thing. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. As important as it was for the people of Israel returning from exile in Babylon to know that God would be that God was present with them before God continued to be present with them even in exile and God would be present with them again as they rebuilt the temple returning to Jerusalem it is all the more important for us to realize that temples built by the hands of men are not the final resting place of God's presence and his glory it continues in us in our hearts by faith in his son through his holy spirit dwelling in us and that uh, promise of his presence and his glory will come to full completion in the resurrection, in the new heavens and the new earth. This world made new again, where God himself is the temple and where his glory is the light of the world. This is very good news for us. We who look back at the history of First Chronicles, a history with a purpose, purpose of, of God demonstrating that he's working everything in history for a purpose and that 
God desires to be present and to be glorious among his people. We see those promises fulfilled perfectly in Jesus Christ, who was born at the right time, who, who was put to death on a cross in the place, uh, in our place, dying for our sins at just the right time, according to God's purpose. And was raised from the dead, ascended to the right hand of God the Father, who is now ruling and reigning over the cosmos, over the cosmos and in our hearts uh, through His own Holy Spirit. We have this wonderful promise of the presence of God. And we have this awesome opportunity tonight to share together in remembering just how that promise came to be to us. Not through the blood of bulls or rams or goats for the temporary removal of sin, but through the body and blood of Jesus, broken and shed for us on the cross, which we remember as we take the Lord's Supper.